Well, if you're anything like me, then you have a tendency to find things about yourself that you wish were different. Anybody like that? Anybody have something in your own life where you just think, if I was, if, if I was a little different in this way or if I had this different characteristic, then everything would work out for me? You know, I think sometimes we joke about these things, right? And sometimes it's really easy to pick on one thing and to say, if I had that, if I was like that, then things would be better. And you know, like as guys, especially when you start to have a four in front of your number, as guys, you begin to say, if I just was as athletic as I used to be, right? Any guys in the room, you know what I'm saying? Like one of you guys did. The rest of you guys are still at the top of your prime athletically. But you know, you look and you say, if I could just just sky toward the rim like MJ, then everything would be great, right? I, I would just be fulfilled. Or you might say, you know, if I just had rugged good looks like Jeremiah Johnson, you know, Robert Redford, then, then you don't have to worry. Everything's okay. Or, or maybe if I had, this, is, this one hits close to home, you know, if I just looked a little more like a young Brad Pitt and had, you know, kind of the long flowing locks, well then, you know, I would have everything I need. But the reality is, I think all of us, we have something in our lives where we feel like is missing. If we just had that characteristic or that skill or that trait, we would be better at whatever it is we're trying to do. So I want you to ask yourself, what is that for you? What is that thing that you feel like is missing in your life? And if you could just get your hands on it, things would be better. Maybe for some of us, it's we want to be more bold we want to take more risks. We feel like we play it too safe. Or maybe we want to become more savvy. And financially, we think if we could do that, we would have a better setup for retirement. Or we, we just want to become better public speakers. Or we wish that we were just better at managing our time. And I mean, there's all of these things that we wish that we could improve upon. And often what happens is that thing that stands up to you, that tends to hold you back, that thing gets in the way of you following where God is calling you to go. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out called The King's Speech. I don't know if anybody saw this movie. It was really interesting. But it was uh, telling, it was based on a true story about King George VI, who lived in the 1930s. And King George VI wasn't planning on being king. He, he, was, uh, he had an older brother, but his older brother just said, I'm not going to be king. He, he walked away from the throne so he could get married to someone the family didn't approve of. And so now here's young George thrown into the spotlight, and now he's king. The problem was that George had a terrible problem with stuttering. And he was so conscious of that that it, he was just deathly afraid of any kind of public speaking, which when you're the king, you kind of need to do, right? And it's interesting, as of course, it's all radio back in those days, in the 1930s, but you know, the, the, uh, the UK, uh, Great Britain, had population all over the globe. And so here's the king of this, or this global empire who is afraid to stand up and speak. And I think... In a much smaller scale in many of our lives, we're not speaking to the whole globe, but we have that thing in our life that scares us to do too. And it typically ties back to something that we think that we are missing. Now, if you know the movie, he ends up getting coaching an hour a day and ends up doing great and becoming a great speaker. But I think for each of us, it plays into our life where we say, what is that thing that's holding me back from being the person that God wants me to be? And what is that thing that I wish was different? Because I don't know about you guys, but in my own life, whatever that thing is typically causes me to hold back. It causes me to shrink back or give up or maybe not even try at all. But I wonder, what if we found out that actually the answer to our problem wasn't getting better at that one thing necessarily? What if we found out 
that everything we needed was right in front of us already, that we already had every skill we needed to accomplish anything God calls us to do. If you were with us last week, we kicked off a new series in the book of Exodus. And we're we're, uh, watching how God's people who in Genesis moved to the land of Exodus because of a famine, and now we find them and they're in a really bad way. They're enslaved, they're being oppressed, there's genocide going on, and they're crying out to God to help them. And we see God hears their prayers, we see that God knows what's going on, and we see that God is going to raise up someone to deliver Israel from the slavery and to set them free. But here's what's interesting. The person that we're going to meet today is not the individual you think would actually be the one that God would call. The person we're going to see today was unqualified for the job. The person we're going to see today was was someone who doubted their own skills. God didn't raise up some great military leader. He didn't send in a superhero like Moon Knight. He didn't raise up somebody with an MBA in leadership. No, God chose Moses. And we're going to see in God choosing Moses, someone who was underqualified and battled self-doubt, God used him to lead the greatest rescue effort in the ancient world. And in this, I think God teaches us something as well, that it's not about how good or how talented or how powerful we are. It's about how good, talented, and powerful God is. And so we're going to see this today. So look with me, Exodus chapter 2, as we dive back in this morning. I've titled my message for this morning, I am not, but I know I am. So look with me, Exodus chapter 2, we're going to see the story of Moses' birth, starting right there at verse 1. In Exodus chapter 2, notice what it says. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took took a wife, or took as his wife a Levi woman. Uh, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him and made a basket of uh, bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, if you remember back, we talked. I'll just stop right there. If you remember back last week, we talked about one of the things that was going on in Egypt at this time is that Pharaoh had enslaved the Hebrew people, and now um, they are uh, just continuing to grow. So they're, they're made slaves, but they're continuing to grow. They're continuing to get stronger. They're continuing to have babies. Pharaoh feels threatened, and so he says to these Hebrew midwives, well, now let's go ahead, and the way we're going to stop the Hebrews from getting stronger is we're going to begin to kill their male babies. It's just terrible, horrible genocide. But I want you to see that it's in the midst of this situation that God moves and raises up the one that he will lead to rescue. And so we see that she drops him by the riverbank. Look at this in verse 4. And his sister, uh, this baby sister, this is Moses, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. Okay, so notice what's going on here. Pharaoh says, hey, there's this decree to Egypt. Everybody, if you see a baby boy, I want you to throw them in the Nile. This is how we're going to stomp out this people, these Hebrew people who could one day take control of our nation. And so we see that Moses is born and Moses' mom hides him for three months. But after three months, she realizes she can't hide him anymore. And so she has to make the really difficult decision. I need to make sure he gets to a good home. So they go outside, they make a little basket which is interesting. That's the same word that we see in Genesis chapter uh, 6 for Noah's ark. She makes a little basket, and she sets him in the river. And she sees some people down river, and so she floats the baby towards the people. And Moses' sister is hiding in the reeds, watching. So Pharaoh says, kill the baby boys. God says, 
Okay, Pharaoh, let me show you what I'm going to do. And so all of a sudden, we see now Pharaoh's daughter is the one who actually receives Moses and decides to keep him. We see a little bit later in the story that Pharaoh's daughter needs someone to raise Moses and feed Moses and take care of Moses. So she calls for somebody to take care of Moses. Do you know who she finds to take care of Moses? His mama. And so now it's his mama taking care of him. And so now you see God completely working providentially through the mystery of the situation. And it's a reminder when things seem ugly and things, things seem like they're falling apart, God is always working in the middle of that. We've seen that over and over in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And now we're seeing it in the life of, of Moses, who God's raising up here. And it's interesting. So Pharaoh makes this decree. Hebrew baby boys need to go. Well, guess who grows up in Pharaoh's house? Moses. God does have a sense of humor. And so now Moses raised, you know, grows up in Pharaoh's home. He's Egyptian royalty. And then we pick the story back up. And Moses is about 40, we think, in verse 11. Notice, notice what we read here in verse 11. We see this. Now, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked, uh, he, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay, so Moses, he, he grows up. All of a sudden, Moses starts to feel led, like, I need to do something to rescue my people. So he goes out one day, and he sees an Egyptian beating on a Hebrew person, and Moses takes it too far. He ends up killing this guy, and he ends up burying him in the sand. And I just think, you know, note to self, murder is always a bad idea, right? I think, you know, in, in Scripture, we kind of see that. So Moses does this unthinkable thing, but he thinks that by doing this, he's going to win over the Hebrew people. Well, it doesn't work. Moses, the next day, goes and talks to some of his Hebrew people, and they immediately turn on him. Word gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so now Moses has to flee. And so Moses, the, the man that God was going to raise up to rescue the Hebrew people, he ends up taking things into his own hands, he ends up making a mess out of it, and now he has to run away. And we see that he runs all the way to the land of Midian to go and hide. What's interesting about that is, if you remember, it was the Midianite traders who took Joseph to Egypt as a slave. Interesting tie-in. So now we find that Moses is on the run. He's made this really bad mistake. He's hiding now, and he runs to Midian. And when he gets to Midian, he meets a guy named Ruel, great name, who also is known as Jethro. It's another great name. And he meets Jethro, and he, he does this really cool thing. He fights off these shepherds and... Then Jethro introduces him to his daughter, Zipporah. He gets married, has a son. And all of a sudden, I think Moses is probably saying, well, this is my life now. This is my life. Egypt's behind me. I'm now living in Midian. And he becomes a shepherd. Interesting, another tie-in we see through Scripture. God loves to use shepherds to lead his people. And so now he's a shepherd for 40 years. And so now, you can imagine this. Moses grows up in Egypt, and now he's living in Midian. And he's thinking, all of that is behind me. And I often think that Moses looks back at that situation that happened with terrible regret and remorse, thinking back that I'm no longer going to be able to do what I felt like God was calling me to do. And now he has this thing that's just weighing on his heart every single day as he lives out this new life that he's living, hiding from his old life in Egypt. Now, I'm going to pause right there for a second. I want to talk a little bit about regret. I think regret is one of those things that everybody deals with. And regret is one of those things that we're all going to be faced with. And I imagine Moses here. Moses took a life. 
And I can't imagine how much that's weighing on him. And not only did he take a life now, he doesn't even feel like he's living the life that he was destined to live, that God was calling him to live. And he ran. And he, he ran away. And I think for us, when we think about regret, I don't know about you, but I feel like in my life, often when regret comes, it makes me want to run away too. I mean, anybody ever felt that way? Like there's just a sting that comes from regret. And, and whatever it comes from, a bad mis- decision, a mistake, embarrassment. I mean, regret can come from a lot of things, but there's a sting that comes with regret. And I think regret tends to lead us to want to run away. It leads us to, to, to maybe want to flee and, and get out of there. And I imagine Moses is living with this regret. And, and for those of you that have lived with regret, you guys know, regret is crippling, isn't it? Like, regret can just, like, cripple you. It can make you feel stuck, and, and it can bring you to your knees. And often we, we, we blame ourselves. We, we feel this sense of loss. We wish we could go back and redo it. But instead of actually stepping out into action, we end up just shrinking back, don't we? Sometimes we just don't do anything. We just give up, or we stop trying. Or maybe we do, like, physically run away, or more it's emotional, or, or even spiritual running away. But I think the Bible teaches us something about regret that's interesting. I think the Bible teaches us that regret doesn't have to be only bad, but that regret can be something powerful that God can use to change our lives and to change our future. Back when I was in my mid-20s, I was working in the transportation industry and um, I was an HR director for a transportation firm, and I just felt like this, this leading, this calling on my life that God wanted me to, to go and, and to lead and to do something. So instead of really seeking what God wanted to do, I decided, well, I'm going to go start a business. And so me and a friend, we decided we're going to start a business. We go, and we, we buy a limousine, and we're going to start a limousine company. And so we go, and we buy the cheapest limousine we can find. It was in terrible shape. I mean, it needed all kinds of work to be done. Courtney did make some really cute cookies, though. I mean, these really great limousine cookies, you know, I think you need to make those again. Those are great. But I bought this limousine, and all of a sudden, I take out a huge ad in the Yellow Pages, because back in the day, people still use phone books. You know, you guys, you young guys are like, what's a phone book? Like, you know, I used to actually be able to, you know, prank call some people. And nowadays, you can't do that. But um, we, so I bought this limousine, and we take out this huge, like, $600 a month ad in the Yellow Pages. But here was the problem. And I hired a driver. Here was the problem. I didn't have anybody to answer the phone. I totally missed that, right? It was, good. it was like calling me all day. And I was the worst secretary and worst receptionist you could ever imagine. The company failed. And within a year, I had to sell the limousine. I was embarrassed. I was just really regretful over the whole situation. And I thought to myself, I'm, never, I'm just not meant to lead. I just don't have the skill set to lead. Like, God, whatever that was that I thought you were telling me to do, I just can't do it. And there was some regret there. And I think all of us have situations where we have regret, where we're walking away and we're thinking, well, I'm never going to do that again because I just don't have the ability to do that. That is not who I am. That is not my skill. Now, I look back and I see that God used that situation to, to teach me that I got way out in front of God, that I wasn't seeking God and what he wanted for me, but instead I was actually trying to, to, to get out in front and do my own thing. And, and, I, and I think one of the things we're going to see through the life of Moses, is that God uses Moses' regret and his experiences to, to really shape and change his life. Notice this. I want you to notice this great quote by Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink wrote a book called The Power of Regret, and he says this. He says that regret doesn't have to always be bad. 
That regret can actually be something that transforms us, empowers us forward to, to be able to do the things better in the future than we could ever have done in the past. Notice what Daniel Pink says. He says, when we handle regret properly, regret can make us better. Understanding its effects hones our decisions, boosts our performance, and bestows a deeper sense of meaning. And I think that's one of the things that Scripture wants to teach us, is, that, is this, that God uses difficult moments in our past to strengthen us for the pivotal, pivotal moments in our future. Like, you guys might, might be thinking about what I'm talking about here with regret, and you might think back to something that happened. It's a bad decision. It's an embarrassing moment. It was a challenging season. And all you want to do is run away from that. You want anything to do with it. But could it be that God wants to use that to strengthen you for something he's going to call you to do in the future? Imagine Moses. Imagine how regretful Moses was, but yet God has a plan for Moses' life. Notice the words of Isaiah. I love this. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18. Isaiah says this. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And I look back and I see that God used that situation in my life to make a way, to teach me and to shape me and to mold me. And I think that God is doing the same thing in your lives too. With whatever that situation that leads you to regret. Because this is what God does. He takes our past hurts and turns them into future promises. He did this with Peter. Peter denies Jesus. What does God, Jesus do? He restores Peter, and Peter goes and leads the church. Think of the Apostle Paul, if you guys know the story of Paul in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was arrested and killing Christians. Think of the regret he felt when he finally put his faith in Jesus, but he realized that God was going to use that to give him the, the vigor to go and to plant churches and to set the world upside down for Jesus. And I think in Moses' case, Moses had terrible situation of regret, but yet God is going to use that to get him ready for what he's getting ready to call him to do. I like how Daniel Pink finishes his quote. He says this, If we look backwards with the specific intent of moving forward, we can convert our regrets into fuel for progress that can propel us for, towards smarter choices, higher performance, and greater meaning. So forefront, I want you to ask yourself, what are you carrying around right now as a weight, as a regret, as something that you want to run away from that God is actually going to use to strengthen you for that pivotal, pivotal moment in the future when he's going to call you to follow him? So we see this in Moses' life. Look what happens next. So Moses is, has been on the run for 40 years. God's been preparing Moses for just the right time. And at just the right time in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 3, we see God reveals himself to Moses. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3. So Moses is on Mount Horeb. Here's a picture if you want to kind of get an idea of Mount Horeb. So Moses was up, uh, you know, the Israelites lived up in Goshen and Ramses and that area right there. So Moses fleed, and he fleed down to where we see Mount Sinai. Now, this is going to be important when we get a little bit later in the book of Exodus into the greater story. But so Mount Horeb, uh, many biblical scholars think is actually another word for Mount Sinai. So he's in Mount Sinai. And God reveals himself uh, to, to Moses. He's out pasturing his flock, and God appears to him. Notice this. He, he sees something he's never seen before. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 2. So Moses, he's, he's taken his, his sheep up, and he's tending to his flock in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
So right here in this moment, God reveals himself to Moses through this encounter this burning bush. And a lot of scholars will look at this as a theophany, right? A theophany is when God himself reveals uh, himself to someone in the Old Testament. And, and, um, or a Christophany is when Jesus himself reveals himself to someone in the Old Testament. And many scholars think that this is a, an appearing of the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus, the word of God, the Logos, who's actually speaking to Moses right here through this bush. And we see that Moses is captivated. He's drawn by this bush because it's on fire, yet it's not burning up. How many of you love a good bonfire at a campsite? I mean, there's something about fire that draws you in, that captivates your attention. But also, God is showing his power here through this bush burning and not being, his cons- not being consumed. So notice, Moses walks up to the bush, and look what happens in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So God calls out to Moses through this burning bush. And I love this. I love what he says. He says, I am the God of your fathers. He didn't say I was or I used to be or I'm trying to be. He says, I am the God of your fathers. It reminds me, Jesus, what he says back in um, the book of Mark, chapter 12, he's like, God is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. So he calls out to Moses. He says, I am the God of your fathers. And notice this, verse 7, he says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up of bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then look at verse 10. Notice this. Notice what he says. He says, come, I will what? Send you. Who? Send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, notice this. Moses has been sitting for 40 years shepherding sheep in Midian. Forty years later, God comes back. He says, I have a plan to rescue my people. And you thought it was you 40 years ago. But guess who it is now? It's you. Like, it, it, you thought it was you. It actually is you. You just needed to go through that last 40 years to get ready to go. And so he says to him, I'm actually going to send you back. And I think there's a principle here for us is this, that God, one of the most powerful ways that God moves is by sending his people to rescue his people. I want you to see that in the story of Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but I often think of, it's easy to think of the way that God moves by these like giant climactic events, right? Like it's fire on the mountain, on the, on the mountain. Or it's, it's you know, these, these giant things that God does to move heaven and earth. We think of these giant things and we hear these stories of where that God like heals somebody medically where nobody's ever seen before. I was watching a YouTube video of Mr. Beast. If you guys know Mr. Beast, it's great. If not, go check it out. I didn't get paid for that, by the way. So, uh, but there's this video. Of these, he, he's watching this video, and there's this guy walking across the street on the crosswalk, and there's these two cars that come colliding with each other, and it just shapes right around the guy, and the guy just keeps walking like nothing ever happened. And we hear these stories, and we're like, man, God, you move in amazing ways. But how many of you know God moves most of the time through the seemingly small words of a friend 
or the encouragements of someone in your life or God bringing someone you don't even know to speak something that you need to hear right at the right moment, right at the right time. God moves powerfully through other people. That's one of the ways that God moves. God is a sending God. And he calls Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to send you back. I'm going to send you back because I know exactly what my plan is for you. See, God often moves in our lives this way. But here's, I think, one of the things he wants us to see is God doesn't want us just to sit and wait for someone to come. God wants us to always be moving forward. And God wants to use you to speak into somebody else's life too in that same exact way. God is a ascending God. God is the one who's always calling and sending his people ahead. He sent Joseph ahead, ahead, Joseph ahead to rescue his people from the famine. He sent Elijah ahead to, to, to direct international politics. He sent the apostle Paul ahead to plant churches. He sent the disciples ahead to teach the kingdom of God. He sends Jeremiah ahead to, to, to discuss and preach the freedom of captives when they're in exile. God is always sending his people ahead. And I wonder, where is God sending you? Like right now in your life, where is God sending you? Because the question isn't if It's where. God is 100% absolutely planning to send every single one of you that know Jesus somewhere. It could be across the street. It could be across the cubicle. It could be to Guatemala. But God is sending each of us. This is the call that he's put on each of our lives. And so he he says to Moses, I am sending you back. Now, what do you think Moses says? When he says, okay, Moses, I'm going to rescue my people, and I'm going to send you back. And I know it's been 40 years, and you've been waiting for this. What do you think Moses says? You think Moses is like, let's go. I'm ready. No, actually. He's like, um, wait, what? Me? I mean, just like he just starts deflecting like crazy. Notice verse 11. Notice what he says. His first reaction is like, what? Like, why? Me? He says this in verse 11. He says, what am I? Or who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, if you would have asked him that 40 years ago, he probably would have been like, okay, let's go. I'm ready. They're waiting for this. But now he's like, me? Look what I've done. I don't have any skills for this. Like, I just killed a guy 40 years ago. I'm hiding still. I can't go back. I'm a shepherd. What skills do I have? I don't know anything about leading. I don't know anything about rescuing. He starts giving God all these excuses. Like, what if they don't listen? Like, what if they don't come? What am I going to do then? And right here in this story, you see Moses is just like you and me. Praise God for that, right? I mean, you can read the rest of the book of Exodus. You can read the rest of the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you can be like, man, Moses is a stud. Like, look at this trust. Look at his faith. Look at all he does. He just got to hold his arm up, arms up, and they win a victory. Like, man, what a guy. He didn't start off that way. Look right here. He's doubtful. He doesn't think he can do it. He's scared. He's just like us. He's just like me. My guess is he's probably a lot like you. So I think if we're honest, when we read our Bibles or we hear a sermon or we feel like you know, God is calling us to do something, what is our very first inclination? It isn't, okay, God, I'm ready. I've been waiting for this. Like about time you asked me. No, it's not. What is it? God, you're choosing me? I can't do that. I don't have that skill. Like, I didn't take that class. I don't have that certificate on the wall. Like, why would I be the one that goes? But I think this is what's so encouraging about this 
This is the same way Moses felt. And yet God used Moses to lead the most significant rescue effort in the ancient world. And it means that whatever God's calling you to do, wherever God's sending you to go, God's going to give you what you need too. And that is really good news. See, and here's the best part. It's not about you. Kind of stings maybe a little bit to hear that. But let's, let's do a little group therapy session together. You guys ready? Shake your shoulders out. You guys ready? On three, we're going to say, it's not about me. Ready? One, two, three. It's not about me. Whew. Doesn't it just feel good? This feels freeing. Reality is, guys, it's not about you. Like, God is saying to Moses, Moses, you don't think you can do this? Well, you can't. So I'm glad that you understand that now. Because I'm the only one that can actually do it. And so I think God is telling us this too. Like, there's this reality. It's a reminder of when God calls us to do something, it's something that's bigger than me. Like, we don't have the ability to go do what God tells us to do. We don't have the ability to go change the world like God tells us to go change it. It's the power of God that leads us to go and actually be able to do these things. It's not up to me. It's up to him. It's not all on me. It's all on him. And the same goes for you. It doesn't matter how good you are, how strong you are, how qualified you are, how talented you are. It's about how powerful God is. Remember, Pharaoh says, kill all the baby boys. And it's five women. It's, it's these Hebrew midwives. It's Moses' mama and his sister that rebuff the Pharaoh and raise up Moses, who's going to be the man that God's going to use to go change the world. God uses the powerless things, the things that seem powerless, to push back on the things the world think is powerful. It's exactly what God does, and this is exactly how God wants to use us. See, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this in verse 27. He says that instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And the same goes for us. When you feel weak, God's going, perfect, because you're in the right spot for me to do something powerful through you. And this is where Moses is. He's in a frail moment right here, talking to the burning bush, talking to Jesus through the burning bush. And Moses starts giving God his excuses. Who am I to go? Why would they listen to me? And notice what God says. This is so good. If you've got a highlighter, a pen, star this in your Bible. This is so good. Verse 11, he says this. Why are they going to listen to me? Who am I? What am I going to say? And God says this. But I'll be with you. So I'm sending you back. Well, why are they going to listen to me? Who am I? Don't worry. I'm going to be with you. And then Moses says, well, okay. Then who do I tell them is with me? If they ask, like, who's this God with you? And notice what God says here. He says in verse 13, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say? Now, this is huge. This is so good. You've got to highlight this in your Bibles. Look at verse 14. He says this. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, imagine you're Moses, and God says, I am who I am. You think Moses is like, ah, okay, got it. Yeah, cool. Makes sense. Yeah. I'll be able to tell somebody that for sure. Like, I'm sure Moses is like, okay. What does that mean? Like, I think it's, it's kind of hard. Like, we read that, I am who I am, and it's easy to get lost in that. I am who I am. And he says this, and, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I think we read this in our Bibles, and we're like, oh, that's cool. We go right by it. But this is huge. But you guys, don't miss. This is huge. 
This right here, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, are probably the most important texts in all the Bible in understanding the name of God, understanding the name Yahweh. We talked back in our Genesis series. If you read the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D in big capitals, it's the word Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. For you Bible nerds, it's the tetragrammaton. That's what that's called. Now, this is what God says his name is. I am. And to us, it just means to be. The, The ancient Hebrews took God's name so serious, they were so afraid of mispronouncing Yahweh that they changed the vowels and they pronounced it as Adonai. Yes, somebody say that, Adonai. They were afraid to even say Yahweh because they were so worried about taking God's name out of context or saying it the wrong way. That's how powerful when God says, I am, that's how powerful this is. Because there's really not a word that wraps this up. I mean, you know you're legit when your answer to what your name is to be. You're like, hey, what's your name? Oh, Pete, Drew, Karina, what's your name to be? All right, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds great. And God is saying to us, I am. And I am means that I am bigger than anything you can imagine. I am someone who has no equal. I am one who has no rival. I am the all-powerful. I am the creator. I am the heart changer. I am the way maker. I am the future changer. I am the one you need. I am everything you could ask for. I am everything you can imagine. And God says to Moses right then, when you go to Egypt and lead my people out, I am with you, and I am all you need. And God says to us right here in this text, whatever you're going through, whatever I'm calling you to do, wherever you feel weak, I am with you. You may be not, but don't worry, I am. And I think that has the power to change our lives if we can understand it. And that has the power to change our lives if we can lean into it. Because it means that God is everything and anything and all the things that we could ever need to do anything and all the things he ever calls us to do. There's a great verse in John chapter 8. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like, who are you? Who, wh- why do you speak with authority? What do you think you know? I mean, you act like you're better than Abraham. And Jesus goes, yeah, Abraham, you guys don't know Abraham, but I do. And they're like, well, hold on, Jesus, you're like 30 years old. How do you know Abraham? And he says this, John 8, 58. This is so good. He says, and they didn't miss this. They understood this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Can you imagine Jesus' voice? He's probably like, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Like, you know, I am. It's like a, you know, it's like a movie, like a scene out of a movie. But I mean, Jesus is saying that I am. I am the God who spoke this world to existence. I am the one who breathes life into your lungs. I am the one who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And I am right here, everything you need, anytime, all the time. I am. And if you guys get that and understand that and take that to heart, it can change your life. Because life isn't all on you. Good news. Life isn't all about you. Better news. Life is all about what God wants to do through you to impact this world and change the lives of other people. And this is what God is trying to, con- to communicate to Moses. He says this, I am means that God promises to always be with us no matter what we're doing and how we're doing it. I am means that God is always by your side. 
I love what Tony Merida says on this. He says, if you feel God is sending you to do something beyond yourself, the key is to take your eyes off of your failures and your weaknesses and get a vision for God. God says, don't look at how big the task is or how ugly the situation is or how small you feel. Look at how big I am. And Moses gave God a lot of excuses, and they were good excuses. And I wonder, what excuses are we giving God to? Because let's be honest. We've got a list of them. And like Moses, a lot of us are saying, well, who am I? Why would they listen to me? I mean, right now in your life, I want you to literally think this week, what excuses am I giving God? I mean, right in my life, if God is calling you to, to go across the street and invite your neighbor to church or to have a conversation with a coworker that you've been feeling that tension on your heart about, to start talking about faith things, or maybe God is calling you to pour yourself into somebody younger than you to begin discipling them or mentoring them, and you're thinking, well, why would I go? Why would they listen to me? I, I'm not the right person. We're making the same excuses as Moses. And I think in our lives, God is saying to us too, yeah, you may not be, but I am powerful to do it, powerful enough to do it all through you. Back in 2012, there was a, a Syrian civil war that took place, and I've, I've told some of you this story before. There was a civil war that was taking place in Syria, and tens of thousands of people were dying. Syria was sending bombs in on each other, and people were getting trapped under the rubble, and they were losing their lives. And so there was a group of civilians named the, the White Helmets, self-entitled the White Helmets. And what they did was they would run into the rubble. So when a bomb went off, the White Helmets would run in, and they would pull all the rocks off, and they would rescue people underneath the rubble. Over the course of the next five years, they saved 100,000 lives. But it's a great cost. Over 250 of the White Helmets died. Interestingly, the White Helmets are making videos now and sending them to the people in Ukraine to help the people in Ukraine learn to go in and rescue people from the rubble as well. I think what the Bible shows us, guys, is that God sent Jesus wearing a white helmet into this world to run into the rubble and to rescue us from the mess to run in and to pull us out from underneath the bricks. And when Jesus stepped into this world and he gave his life on the cross and he rose from the grave and defeated death forever, Jesus declared that I came and I have rescued you. And so when you put your faith in me and you say yes to Jesus, that means that you've been set on the path for new life, that everything changes, that now the great I am is with you and the great I am is by your side no matter what you're going through ever. And now Jesus says, here's the white helmet, and he gives it to us. And just like God raised up Moses to go in and rescue God's people, God wants to raise up you. Because right now in our community, there's all kinds of things going on that we need to go and rescue. We've got people who are oppressed, and we've got sex trafficking, and we've got people who are homeless, and we've got people who are hungry. And we've got people who are dying of spiritual darkness. And we've got people who are living their whole life and not knowing that they have an eternal damnation in front of them because they've never heard the name of Jesus. And God says, here's your white helmet. And I want you to run in. And I want you to go and rescue my people. So I think this week, Forefront, here, here's what I want you to do. Here's my challenge for you is I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to the situations around you where God begins to tug at your heart. And you begin to see that God is sending you somewhere. He's calling you to do something. Maybe it's the guy in the cubicle next door or it's the, the woman across the street. But God is 
got a plan for each of you. And God is calling each of you to go. And he's just saying that, yeah, you may not have what it takes on your own, but I'm going to be with you. And so if they ask you, who sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. So forefront, let's lean into that. Let's stop making excuses, me, me included. I'm the chief of this. And let's start saying, God, yes, I'm going to follow and trust that you're going to be with me every step of the way. Would you pray with me?